Gospels. Sometimes we'll talk about four Gospels. There are not multiple Gospels. There's one Gospel, the coming of Jesus Christ, but there are these four records of that one Gospel. And one reason why there are four records is because the glory of Jesus Christ can be seen in multiple different facets of person. We've had a couple of engagements here recently, and various ones uh, looking at diamonds. And we've been even part of that, as one of those engagements was our own son, and my wife and I with him, and, and with the jewelers, and, and you take that diamond and you look at it from all different angles. And uh, when you've got a good one, it just radiates from all the angles, every direction you look at it. And as you think about the person of Jesus Christ and His glory, it's not as if He's just glorious in one aspect, but He's glorious in all the different facets of who He is and what He's done. And so Matthew records the good news that Jesus is the King of the Jews, first of all, But ultimately, by virtue of the resurrection, He is King of heaven and earth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Mark declares the good news that Jesus is servant. The greatest expression of a servant that the world has ever known. No one has ever done so much good for man through humble ministry than Jesus Christ. Luke declares the good news that Jesus is the ideal man in whom the perfect combination of virtues exists and especially highlighting his tender compassion to those in need and even more particularly to his compassion on sinners in great need because of the consequences of their sin. We got to John's Gospel last week and John declares that Jesus is the Christ the anointed one, the chosen one, God's Messiah, and that He's not only the Christ, but He is the Son of God. And that believing, fully committing my life to who He is, is the one source of eternal life. And each of these writers, again, perfectly superintended by the Holy Spirit to make the emphases they did as they record the life of Jesus, the King of Kings, the greatest servant, the ideal man, eternal Son of God, all in one person. And as they highlight these particular emphases, there is one primary chain of events that they draw attention to. And that is the fact that though he clearly was a sinless man, he allowed wicked men to take his life by crucifixion. And he did. And he said, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down that I may take it again. And he allowed wicked men to take his life so that his death could be a sacrificial offering for the sins of all men. And after his crucifixion, a couple of his friends, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, took his body. They buried it in a tomb that was nearby. And what may have seemed like a defeat to some, and it certainly did to some. What may have seemed like a defeat, crucifixion, body put in the grave, set the scene for the grave. As three days later, he came up out of that grave. And he walked among 
the disciples. And he demonstrated that he was not only sinless man, but he was in fact all that the Scripture claims that he is. He is the very Son of God. And with all of that backdrop in mind, we turn now to the fifth book of our New Testament, the book of Acts. And as you look at it in chapter 1, the title as it's given in the Bible that I'm certain you hold in your hand is the Acts of the... What is it? Can you fill that in? The Acts of the Apostles. And as you think just briefly about the Apostles, you know that those were 12 men, specifically chosen by the Lord Himself, that they might be with Him for those three and a half years of public ministry, and then be commissioned by Him to be the very first ministers that would represent Him and proclaim His Gospel. And there is no doubt that God did use those men uniquely in the advancement of the Gospel in the early church. But as you begin to read through this book of Acts, and really even if you take a pretty casual reading, as the story unfolds, you quickly come to the conclusion that this is not the, the, the work of a mere man or even a group of men. In chapter 2, and you don't even need to turn there, I'm just going to try to draw from a little bit of knowledge that you have of this book. But in chapter 2, it's 50 days after the Passover. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the crucifixion. Those apostles who, most of them, had fled the crucifixion scene in fear. They are back up in the compound of the temple, the courtyard there of the temple in Jerusalem. And they started talking to people from all over the world that was there for the holiday season. And these people from all over the world heard those disciples speak to them, but they heard them speak to them in their own native language. Languages which the apostles had never studied. And eventually as this... You know, this was being noised about and the crowd started to form. They ended up listening to Peter. And he preached and he charged what was by now a massive crowd of Jewish people. And the Jewish people had said, crucify him, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. And Peter charged them with being guilty of the death of Jesus. And he called them to repent and turn to him as their Savior. And 3,000 of them were converted on that very day and became unashamed followers of Christ. And as chapter 3 opens, there's a man who was now over 40 years old that had been lame from his birth. And he was a well-known fixture there as a beggar. And as several of the apostles are going up into the temple, this beggar asked them for money. And they said, we don't have any silver and gold, but we can give you something better. And they said, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And the man did even better than that. It tells us that he stood up and he walked and then he started running and then he started jumping. This is a man over 40 years that everybody had seen as the fixture, as the beggar. And now he's running around and skipping around like he's a little kid. And as, and I mean, we're just a couple chapters into this book. And it just keeps going. But already you recognize, I mean, men that have, that know one tongue but are speaking to people from 11 different geographical regions and they're hearing it in their own native language. 
and the healing of somebody that's been lame for over 40 years. That's not the work of a man. That's not the work of a group of men. God was certainly using him, but this isn't the acts of the apostles or any other man. Some that have noted that and given careful attention have thought that a more appropriate title for this book should be the acts of, perhaps you've heard what I've heard mentioned from the time I was a boy, the acts of the Holy Spirit. And I do want to say that that is certainly getting much closer to being accurate. The ministry of the Spirit in advancing the gospel of Christ is definitely highlighted in the book of Acts. But I want to show you that there is a title that in light of the book, there is a title that is even more precise. The the Holy Spirit is actually not the primary influence of church history. There is another figure who is. And if you'll look at the first verse again of this first chapter... It does identify us for uh, who the person is that is the primary focus of the book. The writer begins by saying, The former treatise, Have I Made, O Theophilus. And if you do not have a marginal note at all, you just want to pause right here and you want to write down Luke chapter 1. Because this author, first of all, is referring to something I've already written. But he also says this, I've already written it to a particular person. And when you go back to Luke chapter 1, Theophilus was a nobleman that Luke addressed his gospel to. And what that is telling us is that Luke is the human author. Luke is the penman of the book of Acts. Luke is the one that the Spirit of God is using now to give us this record of early church history. The former treatise was his what? It was the gospel, the gospel of Luke. And what we want to take note of now here in verse 1 is that Luke says that former record, the gospel that I've already written, it was only the beginning. Notice the last phrase of verse 1. It was of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. The gospel of Luke, the central figure was Jesus, who he was and what he did and what he taught. But now Luke is telling us, listen, the gospel isn't the end of it. The gospel was just the beginning of what Jesus was doing and teaching. When Jesus, after the resurrection, ascended back into heaven, he did not stop working on this earth. Jesus had said back in the Gospels, I will build my church. Yet future, he was saying, I will do the building. In the great commission that he gave, shortly before he ascended into heaven, he said, all power is with me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to observe everything I've taught you. And then he said this, and lo, I am what? Do you know this? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of, even to the end of the age. Listen, the age isn't over. Jesus Christ is, he said, I will build my church. And as you go and fulfill the great commission, I will be with you. And Acts picks up at this point, the record of what Jesus continued to do. In the presence of his disciples to build his church. 
And we could, well, I wonder if we're making too much of that from just that simple statement. But as you continue to read, I want you to turn forward to chapter 2. And I'm actually skipping over some other evidence to this end. But turn forward to chapter 2. In the middle of Peter's preaching, pointing to Jesus, he gives an explanation of these remarkable events. The apostles speaking in languages they had never learned. The crowd gathering. And as they did, notice verse 32. Peter said, this Jesus I've been preaching about. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses, therefore being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he hath shed forth this which ye now see and hear. The Holy Spirit was active on the day of Pentecost, but the source of the Spirit's activity was the ascended Christ seated at the Father's right hand, doing what he told the disciples he would do. Jesus Christ sent the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And Peter said, it's the work of Christ sending his Spirit. That is the explanation for what you're seeing and hearing. In chapter 3, well, in fact, before we even get there, look at chapter 2, verse 47. I mentioned earlier there are 3,000 that believe. And notice verse 47, the last Uh, verse of this chapter, they were praising God, having favor with all the people, and who? Who's at work here to add to the church? The Lord added to the church daily such as should be. He said, I will build my church, and I will be with you, and he is, and he's doing the building. He's the one that's moving here. Chapter 3, I mentioned this healing of this lame man. We later learn in chapter 4 that he was over 40 years old. But when uh, they initially heal him and there's a stir among the people look at verse number 12 when peter saw it i'm I'm in chapter 3 and verse 12 when peter saw it, he answered unto the people ye men of israel why marvel ye at this or look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk the god of abraham and of isaac and of jacob the god of our fathers hath glorified his son jesus whom he delivered up and denied him in the presence of pilate when he was determined to let him go but ye denied the holy one and just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the prince of life whom god hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses and now notice verse 16 and his name through faith in his name hath made this man strong whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And you can see that Peter is saying, listen, if you think that the healing of that man was because we're something special, you got it wrong. (laughs) And when he starts to give an explanation, he doesn't even give an explanation of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean by that to be negative at all. But when he gives an explanation, he said, there's one source of the healing of this man, and it is the name of Jesus Christ and faith in his name. That's how he was healed. The man who became the Apostle Paul, who ended up writing at least 13 of the New Testament epistles, he was initially one of the chief persecutors of the church. And he was in Acts chapter 9. The story is recorded there, as you know. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest more Christians when a bright light from heaven thrust him to the ground and left him blinded. And... Yes, he is thrust to the ground by that light. This man that was then known as Saul of Tarsus knew that that had to be the work of Jehovah God. And when a voice spoke from heaven, 
and said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Saul knew that whoever's talking to him out of that light was none other than Jehovah God. And he looked up to heaven and said, Who art thou, Lord Jehovah? And Jehovah said, I am, do you know this account? I am specifically Jesus whom thou persecutest. Who appeared to Saul of Tarsus brought him to repentance and faith and conversion and made him the Apostle Paul. It was none other than Jesus Christ, the ascended Christ. And I've skipped over multiple other references because we're trying to take a bird's eye view. God did use the apostles and certainly the Spirit of God was active But the primary mover in the early days of the New Testament church was not men and not even the Holy Spirit, but the primary mover was the resurrected and ascended Christ. The gospel record was just the beginning. But don't think after 33 and a half years and the death on the cross and the resurrection that Jesus was done. He's ascended into heaven and he's still doing today what he promised that he would do. He's still building his church. The primary mover and shaker and energy behind the advancement of the church to this very day is none other than the ascended Christ. And you might even want to mark that right at the title. This is not the acts of the apostles. This is not the acts of the Holy Spirit. This is the acts of the ascended Christ to fulfill his promise and build his church. And we have the first record of that early installment. And as we recognize that he is the mover, he is, as, the, as other New Testament epistles say, he is the head over his body, the church. As we consider that emphasis, there is a text right away that does explain why there is still... Uh, attention given to the apostles and even to the Holy Spirit even under this heading of the Acts of the Ascended Christ. I want you to go back to chapter 1 and the very familiar text where we finished our scripture reading earlier this morning and that is verse number 8. Here is what the Ascended, now Ascended Christ who is the head of the church here's what he said he wants the church to be doing. Notice verse 8 of chapter 1 but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost the Holy Spirit is come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth and brother and I just want to pause this morning after kind of laying out an introduction to this book To ask one simple question, what does the ascended Christ want his people to be doing with all that we have learned about him in the Gospels? What does he want us to be doing with the knowledge that he is King of kings and Lord of lords? What does he want us to be doing with the knowledge that that he came not to be ministered unto, but to minister as the servant in Mark and to give his life a ransom for many? 
What does he want us to be doing with the knowledge in Luke that he is the ideal man who came not to call the righteous to repentance, but sinners? What does he want us to be doing with the knowledge that he is the eternal son of God? In believing in him, you have life to his name. Well, he tells us what he wants us to be doing. He says, I'm going to send the Spirit, and when He comes, you shall be witnesses unto me. You can think about a witness in multiple levels. You can think about it very official, whether it's you know, some kind of law enforcement situation or a judicial setting. And sometimes we'll talk about somebody, even in that case, saying, so-and-so gave their testimony today. What did they do? They, they opened their mouth and gave testimony to what they had seen and what they had heard. And dear friend, it really is as simple as this. The ascended Christ wants us to give testimony to who he is and what he has done and why he came to do it. And he, when he went into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to indwell each and every new believer, every new disciple of Christ, he did it so that you and I wouldn't have to witness in our own strength and our own power, but that we would be able to open our mouths and tell other people about who he is and what he's done and why he came to do it, and we'd be able to do it in the strength and power of the Holy Spirit. And I know that this is like, you know, Christianity 101. I mean, if you're talking about registering for college classes, this is the 100 level, right? You might talk about read your Bible, and pray, and do what? Tell people about Jesus. I understand this is foundational, but brethren, I would say this, it is absolutely foundational. You don't move into, as it were, successful Christian living. You don't move into God-pleasing living, God-honoring, God-glorifying life. You don't move into really experiencing the life of a Christian, what God intends the Christian experience to be. You don't get into it if you bypass Christianity 101, and that is new believers, God intends to open their mouth and tell other people about who Jesus is and what he's done. Now, we're living in a day, I, I don't even think you need me to tell you this, but I do think we need to talk about it. We are living in a day where there is just a, an incredible atmosphere of rationalization and excusing of personal responsibility to evangelize. And I think it exists amongst the vast majority of believers today. There's all kinds of reasons for it. Some, <coughs> some have abused the scriptures teaching on the sovereignty of God to excuse away personal responsibility. But whatever else we would teach, rightly so, about the sovereignty of God, <clears throat> the Bible never declares that whoever is going to be saved will be saved no matter what I do or don't do. The Bible everywhere says something like, you, when the Spirit comes to you, shall open your mouth and tell people about who I am. That's how people get saved. Others have abused a scriptural emphasis on, on the gifts and calling of God. I do absolutely believe and think I can demonstrate from the Bible there is such a thing as a call to preach. And there are preaching gifts that God gives. But opening my mouth and telling other people about Jesus 
is not a matter of gifting. It's a responsibility that all of us have. An evangelist is a gifted man, but there's no such thing as the gift of evangelism. <laughs> I mean, you read your Bible from cover to cover, you read the New Testament, you'll not find that. There are all kinds of other <coughs> reasons, excuses, that God's people hide behind in some cases. But brethren, when you just consider the witness, even of the book of Acts, <coughs> there is no disciple of Christ without God-given responsibility to do what the head of the church wants his disciples to do, and that is to open our mouths and tell other people about who he is and what he's done. I'm not going to get as far this morning as I had intended, and so we're going to have to come back to this book um, for a, separate, uh, a second week, Lord willing. But I just do want to show you that witnessing in the book of Acts was on the part of preachers and non-preachers alike. Turn forward to chapter 8. The apostles and, and the other early converts, early disciples, they had focused their, their witnessing efforts in Jerusalem. And it stirred up a hornet's nest of opposition. And eventually at the end of chapter 7, a man named Stephen was martyred for doing nothing other than witnessing. And we pick up the story in chapter 8. Notice... And Saul was consenting. He hadn't been saved yet. That's chapter 9. <clears throat> Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's critical for us to know. The apostles stayed where? Initially, they stayed in Jerusalem. Come down to chapter, uh, still in chapter 8, verse 4. Notice what it says about these men that went everywhere. Therefore, they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, there are multiple Greek words that are translated preach or preaching in our English versions. The one that is used in the next verse, do you see verse 5? Then Philip went down the city of Samaria and he preached Christ unto them. That is the word uh, for the term herald, K. Russo. Philip went down in K. Russo. He preached like a herald. That's what we think of as formal preaching, like I'm doing this morning. All right? But I'm drawing attention to that to have you back up into verse 4. The word that is in verse 4 is a completely different word. It, it's basically <clears throat> the word for just talking or sharing the good news. It's like what you'd do if you were at a store, ladies, and you ran into one of your friends, and you said, you can't believe the deal. I mean, I just came from there, and I got however many, you know, dresses or skirts or, I, you know, I got however many, you know, tubs of this food, <laughs> okay? It was such an incredible deal, I decided to stock up. You're, you're announcing good news. It's the same concept that is here. What it is saying is, look... The apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Everybody else spread. And when they spread, I mean, in their marketplace, at the barbershop, at the neighborhood, at the city park, wherever they went, they just started telling people about the good news, about who Jesus is and what he had done and why he came to do it. And there's salvation in him. You can be forgiven for your sins and have a personal relation with him and know that you have eternal life with him. This is the best news any man could ever know. 
And people spread, and that's what they did. Everywhere they went, they just started telling others. And I want to tie this in by turning to chapter 11. Come down to chapter 11 here in Acts, and verse number 19. Acts 11, verse 19. Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen. So you can see, that's what we were talking about in chapter 8. There's some other things that have come up. Now he picks up this story. They traveled as far as Phoenice and Cyprus and Antioch, and they were preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. That was initial. Now look at verse 20. Some of them which were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, they spake unto the Grecians. A new ethnic boundary has been breached, preaching the Lord Jesus. And now notice this. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed. And turned unto the Lord. And the church that was planted in Antioch, historians indicate, ended up being at its peak about 15,000 in membership. And it had several prominent ministers over the course of multiple centuries. It became the first church to send out missionaries. We were there last week in chapter 13. And God used it in a very prominent way for an extended time. And like I did on our homecoming Sunday... I've sometimes had people turn to this passage, Acts 11, and tell me who were the names okay, of, the, of the evangelists who planted this church in Antioch. And if you took the time to do that right now, trying to figure out who they were, you would come up with, you'd come up with the answer that this is a trick question. There aren't any names mentioned. And that is exactly right. And I just underscore it again right now in this context. This church in Antioch that God greatly used wasn't started by apostles. It wasn't started by anyone directly commissioned by the apostles. This was a church started by, I'm going to use this expression that's common in our day, but this was a church started by lay people who proclaimed Christ wherever the Lord took them. In verse, 30, uh, in verse 22 here of chapter 11, we're told eventually that word of this reached Jerusalem. That's about 300 miles away. And remember, it reached there without mass transport or mass media. And finally, Barnabas was sent in to provide some leadership. But until this point, it's just faithful, no-name, untrained lay people. They just kept telling people about Jesus. And they did it in the power of the Spirit of God. And God blessed it. And many believed. And a church was started. And that church became exceptionally fruitful in fulfilling the Great Commission and reaching its world. Now, brethren, again, I'm just wanting to illustrate from a couple places. This is what happens when the Spirit of God is the dominating influence on a man's life. It doesn't matter trained, untrained. It doesn't matter young or old. It doesn't matter male or female. When there's a child of God who is yielding to the influence of the Spirit of God in their life and they are walking in fellowship with the head of the church, the Lord Jesus, that child of God just instinctively opens his mouth and tells other people about Jesus. When that is not happening on a regular basis in our lives, we have to admit that something is grieving and quenching the ministry of the Spirit of God, who from within us, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Spirit, and from within, he's going to empower you to be witnesses. 
When we're not regularly opening our mouths and telling others about Jesus, something is grieving and quenching the work of the Spirit. <clears throat> this is the mind of the ascended Christ. Listen, when we're not opening our mouths and telling others about Jesus, something has breached the relationship with Him. It could be fear. I mean, it could, it could just be, you know, our human, and, and, and certainly our flesh will add to it. It could just be our fear of how I'm going to be received. It could be our fear that I don't know what to say. <clears throat> There's a whole host of sources of fear. It could be fear instead of just faith and courage. The faith that says, I'll not ever witness to him without him going with me. He promised he'd be here. The, the faith that says, he said I wouldn't have to do this on my own. That's why he sent the Spirit. It could be fear instead of faith and courage. It could be love of the things of this world to the point that we have lost sight of truly spiritual and eternal realities. There are other things that quench the Spirit. I mean, Ephesians 4 talks about sins of the flesh, anger and bitterness and wrath and clamor. And I mean, it could be that we're not right as spouses and children and church members and with our authorities and so on, and, and we're grieving the Spirit of God. It could, be that we've, it could be that we've accepted Christianity as kind of a formal cultural religion. I mean, Christianity is our creed, but we don't have a true connection to Jesus Christ at all. That could be the issue. It could be that his spirit isn't even living inside of us and we don't know him. But the point is this, that when the Holy Spirit is the dominating influence of a life, Witnessing is a regular part of the lifestyle. And the book of Acts tells us what to do with the first four books of our Bible, of our New Testament. The book of Acts tells us what to do with the gospel. Again, what should we be doing with the news that Jesus is king? That he's the greatest servant the world's ever known. <clears throat> that he's the ideal man and you'll never find a man of more tender compassion what should we do with the news that he's the eternal son of God who came to lay down his life for sinners? What we should be doing is we should be opening our mouths to proclaim that news in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, and we'll see next week, Lord willing, all around the world we should be doing that. This is what he gave us to do. And you know what? If this is what he gave us to do, and he gave us all the resources to do it, that means any and every one of us can do it. <clears throat> do you know that in the Gospel of John, chapter 9, a man that Jesus had healed, <clears throat> and then he came and in faith received him and worshipped him. That man, that man had been, I'm going to use our terminology today, that man had been saved for minutes. Minutes. And there was opposition. <clears throat> and the opposition came to him and, and tried to get him to deny what had just been done and to deny who Jesus was, and they were heavy on him. And that man said, listen, I don't know all the answers, of, and I don't even know what you're all up to, and there's not a lot I can say, but I can tell you this. I was blind, and now I see, and he's the one that did it. Do you know what? Every one of us that knows what it is to come to the place of acknowledging I'm a sinner, and knowing I can't do anything to free myself from my sin, 
But Jesus has forgiven me, and he's given me life, and he's changed me. We know enough to say, I was blind, now I see. I was lost, now I'm found. I was dead, and now I have life. And I can tell you, I don't know a bunch of other stuff, but I can tell you this, it's because Jesus changed me. And do you know every one of us can do that? And every one of us can take a gospel track. And I know sometimes you think, oh, we always say those kind of things. Does it really happen? I can tell you about a man who was in the Air Force and stationed in Denver. And he went to a payphone to call home. And there was a gospel track sitting beside there. And God used that gospel track to bring him to salvation. He ended up going to Bible college, yielded his life to go back and plant a church in Mormon territory in Utah. I can tell you a man who's a deacon in the previous ministry we were just in, who was a college student at the Wisconsin State Fair, had a booth representing the Libertarian Party. And in the State Fair, there were some weirdos with a gospel tent. And these college guys were, you know, kind of laughing and they actually drew straws at who was going to have to go over and listen to the gospel presentation. And he got the short stick, and he went over there, and he listened. And God used that presentation within days to bring him to saving faith in Christ. And today he's raising his family to live for God and serving as a deacon in a church and telling other people about Jesus. Absolutely God does it. And he'll use preachers, and he'll use parents, and he'll use somebody that passes out a track, and he'll use somebody that cares in the neighborhood to invite a family out. He'll use any and all of us if we just say, I was blind, now I see, and Jesus is the one who's done it. And this is what he wants us to be doing. And dear friends, without it, we don't know what real Christian living is all about. But with it, will be part of what Jesus said he would do to build his church for God's eternal honor and glory. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes this morning? What have you been doing with the gospel? If you're here as a child of God, there's almost nothing that I have told you this morning very little to nothing that I've told you this morning that is new to you. You knew Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. You knew he's the greatest servant. You knew there's no one that has compassion like Jesus. You knew he's the eternal son of God. You know he's the only savior, that he died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. But what have you been doing with that message? We have this fifth book of our New Testament to tell us what he wants us to be doing. There's more to the Christian life, absolutely. But this one, this one is also clear. It's unmistakable. He saved us to serve, and he's left us here for multiple purposes, but one of the chief ones is so that we tell other people about him. And if that hasn't been the case in my life, would you just, first of all, acknowledge to God it hasn't been. And tell him you're sorry because it's a matter of disobedience. And maybe right now you have a pretty good idea of what's kept you. Or maybe right now you would have to say, Lord, I, I don't even know how I've gotten to this place. 
would you show me what it is that's been grieving, quenching the work of your spirit? Would you show me where the breach has come, even in my fellowship with Christ? And would you forgive me, and would you just continue to lead me and change me? Nurture my faith. Give me strength for obedience. And then, Lord, use me. And I want to remind us this morning, even as we face that kind of thing, the saving isn't our work. God does the saving. Paul said he planted and Apollos watered. God gave the increase. I can pray, and I must proclaim. And then I see what God will do. But I, in order to see what God will do, I must do my part. And I really need to settle that and ask for his help. Would you do that this morning? Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank you again for the opportunity to just hear from you, to hear even specifically from Christ himself as the written word is the expression of the living word, and this is all that he wanted to say to us, and, and he, in his wisdom, has sent the Spirit to guide these men, to pen these words, so that we would have all that we wanted from him and all that we need from him. And we just pray you'd help us to respond this morning, not as if we're responding to some kind of formula, not as if we're responding to just a mere rule book and some kind of law, but that we're responding really to the heart of the Savior because we know we've heard from him. Lord, help us and use us for your eternal glory and for the good of being instruments in your hands to reach others that are lost. And again, I pray that if there's any here this morning to just say the first thing I need to address is the state of my own relationship with Christ. Lord, continue to stir them up and draw them, even to get the help that they need. And bring them to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to turn in our hymnals this morning to... Uh, number 500 and 50 uh, number 500